I'm Dash, father of two adopted daughters and two biological sons between the ages of 2 and 13. And I'm Swy. I'm a year and a half into parenting, and it is way harder than I thought it would be. And you are now listening to the sounds of Imperfect Dads, a parenting podcast. We're staked out at this little corner of the internet to create a community that has empathy for and camaraderie with other imperfect parents. A place where we can learn from other people how to be better parents. And where we can occasionally figure out how to be cooler parents. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and give us a rating on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Podcasts. And thanks to those of you who have given good reviews, especially our wives. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, which are great platforms to passively aggressively share our podcast with the parents of the annoying kids at the Wednesday morning playgroup. Thanks for listening to episode two, where we get to talk to our friend Kyle Hookstra, head roaster at West Rock Coffee Company, about how to be cooler when drinking coffee, for sure, but also get to hear about his amazing family's resiliency through life-threatening trauma and whole-scale changes to his parenting responsibilities. Now let's make like a hat and go on ahead. (laughs) That was worse than mine was last time. Hey man, how's it going today? Dude, I am good, but I am tired. Oh, yeah, me too. We've been having some sleep issues in this house, but I'm energized to be here for episode two, which is double the amount of episodes I think most people thought we would record. If you count episode zero, this is our third episode, which is literally 300% the amount of podcast episodes I thought I would ever make. Nice. Congratulations. Yeah, I thought the first one was campy not a lot of expectations and people generally enjoyed it now that we're here with another opportunity to bring this to the masses i like to call it the dad pyre strikes back i think that we'll really have things tightened up we will peak and from here on out the results will vacillate somewhere between dodgy and solid hey man um did you have any imperfect parenting moments over the last couple of weeks? Man, I admit, I don't always know how to handle all the situations with my kid in public. We try to go to the story hour at the library every week to, well, one, to get out of the house occasionally, but two, to provide some socialization for my kid. Uh, but this last week, he kept crawling up on kids and hugging them from the side, kind of like a wrestling move. Affectionate fellow. Yeah, well, you know, he had a smile on his face the whole time, uh, but we haven't had that consent talk yet, so I don't know how to <laughs> how to really approach this. So I kept trying to, like, pull him back, and I would apologize to the respective mothers, but he just, like, kept doing it. He, he ended up hugging, like, three or four people uh, at this little story hour, and it wasn't violent or anything. It was just kind of surprising and a little bit restrictive to the other child in the equation. So, I don't know, maybe you can help me out here. What's the formal rule book for toddler to toddler physical contact like are there consent rules that are implied even though they can't formulate words yet you know if there's one thing i've learned about toddlers it's that they pretty much like to touch everything and they like to put everything in their mouth and that's just general rule of knowledge for everybody you're probably best off reiterating one or two lines over and over again just sort of as a way to let other parents know that you're trying so things like gentle touches buddy or 
oh, give your friend a little bit of space. And if you keep saying that over and over again, I think you at least get credit for trying. Yeah, because there's really two levels of interaction going on here. It's it's between the two children, obviously, and making sure that everything's copacetic there. But there's also like this social thing with the other parents, like, like when am I supposed to jump in and like prevent my child from touching their child? And I, I know other people are a little bit more persnickety about the details of that, but I don't know, like what's appropriate touching that I don't need to interrupt and apologize for, you know, maybe well, a listener can weigh in with some tips too. Yeah. I think um, the problem with, you know, parents that get oversensitive about that stuff is they wouldn't have to worry about it as much if they would just vaccinate their kids because then their kids would be more impervious to a lot of the communicable diseases that we've practically eradicated from society before the last couple of weeks. Secondly, if your kid's not going aggro, then it's pretty cute. I think most parents are just thankful that you're not having to tell your kid to like not hit. So hugs, I think hugs are probably okay for toddlers. Yeah, he also does this thing where like, you know, you can uh, like do like a gentle headbutt. It's not really a headbutt. It's more like just touching foreheads and oh, yeah. making eye contact. So I do that with him all the time, like when I'm putting him down to, you know, to go to sleep for a nap or at night. But then he does that sometimes to other people and people get freaked out a little bit when uh, my kids over there like headbutting with a smile. It's fine as long as... Gentle touches, buddy. Well, yeah. (laughs) It's fine during the winter. It gets a little awkward during the summer when he's sweating and it turns into like a French forehead kiss. That's when it probably (laughs) crosses the line. Yeah. Hey, buddy, remember to use your hanky. (laughs) Dab dab that sweat. What about you, man? You've had any uh, imperfect fathering moments this week? We've covered a lot of ground at my house this week. We had our first Valentine's dance for the seventh grader. The uh, toddler got strep throat. My wife went away for a mommy's retreat over the weekend. And the kids and I, we did more than survive. We, like, we did well. And we thrived. Yeah, well, I was trying to think of a word between survive and thrive. I couldn't (laughs) think of one, especially not one that rhymed. But maybe next week I will. Um, What I've realized since we've started doing this podcast is there are just so many things to share for this segment. Uh, (laughs) It it can make me feel a little down on myself. But then I just realized, you know, people aren't going to know all of the things that I messed up on these last couple of weeks just the one that i choose to self-disclose for this segment and there you go the one i want to talk about happened a while ago and the reason i feel like i need to talk about it is because my wife and i were made to look like parenting experts a little bit i had pitched an idea to a website about how we talk to our middle schooler about social media, specifically Instagram. And when I pitched it, I pitched it as we started talking to our daughter about Instagram and I want to write this piece that in the intro makes people think that I'm nervous about having the sex talk with my daughter, 
But then like I pivot and I say, you know, in reality, that's an easy talk to have compared to the social media talk. And they're like, okay, yeah, like do that. And I wrote the piece and it was kind of a, this is how we're kind of working our way through a parenting thing that we don't really understand. It's kind of the tone that I had written it in. And the thing about these websites is if there's an editor for the site, they're the ones that choose the title. And when they titled it, they titled it uh, with something like very, very definitive, like how to talk to your kid about social media, because you'll have to someday. (laughs) And this thing drops the day after our first podcast drops. And I felt like it was really off brand. Like here we are trying to, um, you know, make these difficult parenting (laughs) talks. Commiserate with other parents here. Yeah. And then I've got oh. this thing out there that's like, hey, do you're it. a professional. Yeah. 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 Um, so what I did want to talk about today was that in the interest of full disclosure, the Instagram talk was our second attempt at social media with our daughter. There was another app that she really wanted to do because all her friends do it. Uh, it's called Musical.ly or TikTok now is what it's called. It is where mostly teenagers make little music videos they can make music videos to pretty much any song they want the songs are loaded into the app and they'll lip sync and they'll dance they'll do various other things we had totally thought that we figured out how to set this up we had myself and my wife and a couple of other adults follow her on this app and she was making videos and we're like oh this is kind of cute and whatnot and then we got on it one day and we had told her you could only follow people you know, your friends. We didn't want her following strangers or strangers following her and, and creeping. And when we went on, we realized that this app was just like the wild, wild west. And kids who were in middle school were choosing to do music videos to songs that were completely inappropriate for kids to be doing music, music videos to. Uh, they're lip syncing them and they're dancing to them and we're just like whoa like this thing is way out of control there there are no adults in the room right here and everybody's wiling out and it was tough because we had to go back to her and figure out how to say we know that you're really enjoying this app and you haven't done anything wrong but as your parents we didn't do well to protect you And there's this whole conversation Mm. amongst parents, like, what do you do with your kids and social media? Some people say, keep them all the way off. Like, there's nothing good that can come from it. On the other other end of the spectrum, there's this idea of, yeah, let them do it and don't check up on them because that creates a space for them to express themselves. And we had settled into that middle lane of, let's try to do it like she has a learner's permit for social media where we try to model some stuff for her and get her around good safe people and kind of watch what she's doing so that then when it's time for her to go out on her own we we can have like some trust in her and and know that she's sort of figured it out a bit so we're doing much better with the instagram part of that is the way the app is set up part of it is how other people use the app and the other part is since there are way more responsible adults on instagram and i've been on instagram for a long while we were able to 
find people that she knows, former college students of mine and family members, so that she could see a lot more people using Instagram responsibly and appropriately, and that could inform how she uses it in the future. So I'm sure that a lot of my imperfect parenting moments as we do this podcast will be about technology because it is an unescapable challenge um, that's always changing and even for parents that try to stay well informed and be responsible and have good intentions you're gonna misstep like we misstepped and uh yeah we'll (laughs) just figure it out as we go i guess yeah just uh kind of stumble through and like tell your kid when you messed up that's what it that in this situation that worked out well for us when we just said man like we're sorry we messed up and we know that you're enjoying it but we didn't do make the best decision here and which is what we yeah. want her to be able to do when she messes up if anybody else out there wants to share an experience where you felt the reality of your imperfection as a dad feel free to mail email us at imperfectdads at gmail.com or hashtag imperfect dads on twitter i did have somebody reach out to me via twitter when we were talking about some of this stuff and he said man tell me about being a hip-hop head djing holding your baby girl on your hip and realizing all of the flyest breaks in songs have the firest language something you got to worry about when you're djing and an example of how the way your ears hear things very much do change when there's a kid in the room. That sound means it's... I'm making a unilateral decision that we will never again use air horns on this show. But but what if we release an album? The only way we ever use air horns again is if DJ Khaled actually starts producing our podcast. Okay, fine. But either way, we wanted to introduce a new segment on the show this week that we want to call The Seahorse Society. Also, I am still protesting the name unless we get some cool stickers or patches or perhaps jackets. Jackets. Uh, I guess that could serve as the request for proposal from all of our graphic design inclined listeners uh, to pitch us a cool sticker design if you want. Yeah, we could, uh, you know, like offer them all of the royalties from this week's special ad. Perfect. Yeah, they can uh, consider their checks already in the mail. Okay, so back to the Seahorse Society. So, seahorses are one of the only animals in which the male of the species is responsible for the gestation and primary care of the young. If you are worried about the perceived lack of masculinity that could be connoted from this designation, rest assured because... Ground seahorse, which, by the way, is more valuable per gram than gold, is used in traditional Chinese medicine as a cure for impotence. We want to use the Seahorse Society, and we are keeping that name, despite protests, to shout out a dad or parent or person each episode that, that are doing some really cool and unique or outside the normally expected realm Uh, efforts to raise their children who do we have this week all right so for our initial seahorse member i want to nominate a friend of mine who's currently raising a couple of teenagers 
as most of you who have interacted with teenagers, whether they're your children or not, you know that they are notoriously difficult to engage in any sort of formal parent-led character development activities, right? But my friend, Brandon Pritchard, has over the past year undertaken a new effort to build family time into something more than just, like, you know, typically shared experiences or watching a movie together. Each Saturday, he leads his family of four through a Dungeons and Dragons campaign where his kids get to use, like, you know, cognitive skills as well as social skills and emotional skills to navigate through a series of adventures, you know, challenges, confrontations, and collaborations with the other players, with new characters, and occasional monsters for those of you that have never played Dungeons and Dragons. The cool thing that he adds to the regular format is an emphasis on building empathy empathy with the other characters right so brandon uh hats off to you you have the distinct honor of being the first member of the seahorse society uh, for creatively engaging with your kids and for raising a couple of really great empaths kudos good man kudos contrary to perception parents are people too and we all have hobbies there are things that we like to do when our kids are napping sleeping or otherwise distracted typically doing screen time my dad distraction for this episode is an espn 30 for 30 documentary that i recently watched called dion's double play are you old enough to know who dion sanders is like as an athlete <laughs> come on man <laughs> i was checking in listen i remember him watching i remember uh him literally just like walking into the stadium to run his 40 for the uh nfl combine literally just like walked off the plane walked in ran his 40 and then just left the stadium and his 40 was so fast everyone was just like uh, i think you're reverse wow. engineering this this memory i think you remember that because you saw a highlight somewhere because the I documentary the takes place Oh, okay. <laughs> this uh, documentary takes place in 1992. Deion Sanders is playing professional baseball for the Atlanta Braves and professional football for the Atlanta Falcons. On a Saturday night, the Atlanta Braves are playing in a playoff game in Pittsburgh. Deion Sanders plays in that game, flies down to Florida to play with the Atlanta Falcons in a football game on Sunday afternoon and then flies all the way back up to Pittsburgh to suit up for the playoff game Sunday night and didn't get to play but he did like make it into the building he ended up playing a uh, major league baseball game and an NFL game on back-to-back -back days and attempted to play both in one day I was watching it there was something familiar about it because I was 12 when when this happened and I do remember Dion playing as a player in both sports I don't remember this particular instance firsthand but then there's also this surrealness as I watched it because I don't think this will ever happen again sports have just become so specialized I don't see anybody pulling off the the baseball football thing again and not only that but man the media circus was crazy in 1992, and I can't even imagine what it would have been like if social media had been around. There was a, a narrative that was happening, and there were these competing narratives. 
that were happening but if everybody had been able to chime in and and give their hot takes it would have been absolutely bonkers as it was it was crazy but it would have been more bonkers the other thing that stood out to me that's really changed over time is i had forgotten how football particularly college football in the nfl were those were the 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 sport in the leagues most informed by rap music back in the day and how that has totally changed like you do not see that anymore partially because the NFL is such a uh, image conscious and sanitized league. I think there are probably some other reasons, but now, you know, you talk about rap music or hip hop and sports and it's all NBA, like it's all basketball. And there was a day pre Allen Iverson, mostly where that wasn't the case where it was football and just kind of thinking about that and how that informed teams that I rooted for or rooted against growing up and, and players that I was drawn to was a little walk down memory lane and just a surprising thing that I had forgotten. How about you, man? What have you been up to? About six years ago, Karen asked me for a couch table, which is like, uh, I don't even know how to describe it. It's kind of like- Is it a a table that you lay on? No. Okay. It's it's like a little table that fits over your couch so that you don't have to set your drink down on a couch cushion. You can set it down on like a solid wood surface. She saw one at a, I don't know, on Pinterest or something like six years ago, and she asked me for it. And I am proud to say that I finally delivered it. I have a friend and former coworker who has really gotten into woodworking the last few years. You guys should follow him on Instagram, 9017woodworks. Uh, and anyway, it inspired me to kind of re-engage a latent hobby the last few years, and I just hadn't really had the space in my life for it. But I think it's really important, and my therapist has affirmed this that we carve out, you know, capacity in our lives to be creating something, to be building or doing something instructive. So this is my occasional effort to do so. So I made this couch table and I could put up the pictures in the show notes, but I think it turned out really well. And more importantly, it made my wife really happy. Uh, Now she doesn't have to hold her plate and drink on her lap when she sits on the sectional. So uh, all in all, pretty, uh, pretty big day. And I'm really encouraged that while I'm sitting around watching TV, you're making things. Thanks. Thanks for that. Appreciate that. (laughs) We know that all the dads out there also have hobbies. Moms, too. If you have something that you have been doing that is a distraction from parenting, something that you enjoy or that has caught your interest, feel free to hit us up. Hashtag DadDistraction on Twitter. And perhaps we'll share some of the best ones on the podcast. The worst five minutes of my day are when the baby wakes up from nap time and my video game isn't quite over. The crying and fussing and craving of my undivided attention can almost be too much for me, especially when I'm in the fourth quarter of a close game. But even worse is the 14-year-old kid on the other side who is heckling me relentlessly after realizing he's beating someone more than twice his age. That's why I use Escape, the new reverse noise cancellation headset from Papa Audio. Unlike other headsets that only cancel out ambient noise around you so you can hear clearly, this new microphone also cancels out the ambient crying toddler, allowing you to finish your game in peace. And by peace, I mean free from the hurtful and unfiltered wisecracks of teenagers with no supervision who realize you are both an inattentive parent and terrible at this game. As a special gift to our listeners, use coupon codes DADDYDON'TCRY 
and they will include an automatic retort feature, allowing you to respond with pre-programmed comebacks that only people from your generation will understand. Your opponent researching your outdated trash talk might provide you the confusion needed to snatch victory from the jaws of humiliation. Guest today on the podcast is Kyle Hookstra. He has been married to his wife for 13 years. He is the father of three, including both biological and adopted kids. He is the head roaster for West Rock Coffee Company, as well as a co-founder for Atypical Coffee. Kyle has been in the coffee business for a number of years, where he has filled pretty much every role you could fill, from roaster to barista to delivery driver, and we're excited to have Kyle on the pod today. Thanks for having me, fellas. How are things? They are good, swimmingly good. Hey Kyle, I uh, have to tell you, I was only, I only gave into coffee uh, after grad school and we had a kid. And so I was wondering right off the bat here, what's the best advice you have for somebody who drinks instant coffee from Nescafe? <laughs> well, um... Is there any way to make it taste <laughs> less bad? The, well, uh, no. The Nescafe, no. There's no way uh, to make it taste less bad. Uh potentially adding more cream and sugar will do it but um man i here's here's the thing that i found is uh, i think it's close to a hundred percent success rate that when i have let someone taste a coffee that can stand up by itself without any cream or sugar that that's just like sweet and just a pleasant cup that they um suddenly like the the walls come down that uh that specialty coffee isn't quite as intimidating or um they they don't get as freaked out right like on on something that seems so foreign to them which there's a certain touch to that if people are looking to get into coffee for some reason they just really want to like coffee what should a novice be looking for in regard to roasts that work really well but then also to entry-level equipment that makes sense sure so from my experience i would say that i would say that the the best thing that you can do is just to come in with um with kind of a an open like kid-like exploration to it because there's so much out there and you could try 10 different coffees and come up with one that you really really like um from from um like you know however many roasters you want to try out but then uh you might come across like another set of 10 and you find eight of them that you do like and so it's just one of those like you can you can endlessly explore the world of coffee um and then um you know to the to the equipment side of things so the the three things that i have found uh, let me back up two things that i have found that have made the biggest difference in in how my coffee tastes are good water and a good grinder like that's that's kind of the the beginning of it um and you can get like an entry level uh burr grinder 
for you know 70 80 bucks that will that will do a pretty good job um, that will that will definitely get you over the hump of um, I all I have is a blade grinder like an like an herb grinder you know um, and then yeah just like getting good filtered water is is the next the next step and then from there um, it's just kind of um, what you what you have time to to mess with right so you can uh, you could spend endless hours um, trying to perfect uh, manual pour overs and that's fun and and you can get a really good cup there's also some nice uh, automatic brewers out there that will do um, a more consistent and just about as good a job as a manual pour over so those are those would be the things I would say for for the new guys out there or girls trying to trying to get in on the coffee game one thing that I found was really cool was um, I went to a friend's house who didn't drink a lot of coffee but when he got coffee it was pretty good stuff from people who lived in other countries and who would bring it back as gifts or sometimes sell it as fundraisers for the work that they were doing there and he just had a little manual hand grinder and that thing was pretty sweet and my wife mm -hmm. ended up getting me one of those and I take it everywhere with me now because it allows me to grind my own coffee when I'm on the road and at first when I saw him using it I was like ah oh, man I wouldn't want to use that every day but it's not even that bad like in terms of difficulty to grind stuff by hand yeah and it I think um uh you know you gotta you gotta also factor in who you who is your audience, right? Like, are you are you just brewing for yourself, or is there somebody else in the house that might want to drink all of your coffee? You know? Yeah, we're having a problem with that right now yeah. in my house. <laughs> we, I was the only coffee drinker. My wife made it through med school and residency, never drinking coffee. And then when we were getting ready to adopt our daughter from Ethiopia, coffee is so much a part of the culture that she... Mm -hmm knew like to be a socially responsible traveler that she couldn't just go places and refuse coffee because that would be turning down the hospitality of a really hospitable culture and so she got into cold press and at first um with that kind of milder taste she did doctor it up quite a bit but she's to the point now where she's just drinking cold press black and it used to be she only does decaf it used to be where when I would order, I order coffee in bulk. So I'd order five pounds for me and one pound for her and then five pounds for me and two pounds for her. And I think I'm going to have to go, uh, even up next time I make my next order. So, uh, yeah, it's getting that makes a little you, expensive. Yeah. That, uh, but that doesn't that make you like, like a proud husband, you know, like you've done, you've done your job. You can like sit back right now. I think it made me a proud husband when I could still have an air of superiority. And now that we're like on equal terms and, and she's as coffee snobby as me, uh, I'm finding myself a little bit like as though I need to throw up the elbows to keep my territory and good reputation intact. And I'm having a hard time with that crisis of identity. Yeah, that makes sense. That really makes sense. I my wife will uh, regularly chastise me, uh, especially like early in the morning, where she's like, "I can't, I can't talk to any of our children right now. I can't function. I need you to go make coffee." And 
as I'm going, she's like, you know, I never was like this before I met you. And (laughs) (laughs) yes, and I just put my head down and go make coffee, you know? Yeah. So speaking of somebody that's, you know, a relative coffee snob, uh, I'm not talking about myself. Obviously, I'm a coffee noob. Uh, For somebody that's looking to cut through several years of the pretension of becoming a snob, are there certain things that I should know if I go to like a fancy coffee shop? Like what should I order? Is is there like a gradient of how cool and how snobby I am based on what I order? And and if there is, what should I order to just skip all of the the middle process there? I'd, I'd like to be known as somebody that's really cool. Right, right. Well, um, that's that's the tricky part, right? Is that you you run the risk of getting uh, not being fulfilled in your order, like the more pretentious you get, right? <laughs> so, yeah. so the the thing that um, I'm I don't know I might be in the minority on this uh, opinion, but when I go to a new coffee shop, like if I'm gonna try something first, I'm gonna try their drip coffee that's been brewed on a on a automatic machine because it's it hasn't taken the the beating that a barista has taken all day mm. right like they haven't the machine is built to make coffee all day and who knows if the barista just had a bad experience with the customer and they're just like ready to get off the clock you know and make and so I order a pour over and they start making my drink and they just they don't care about it, you know? Yeah. And so that's uh, like, for, con- for yeah, for consistency's sake, I'm going to go with the drip coffee. And then um, after that, um, it just kind of depends on, on what mood you're in, right? Like, are you wanting something warm and cozy and you want to get something like milk-based or do you want to, um, like, are you looking for a jolt of something and like really wanting to see like how, like, is this coffee shop worth its worth its muster right and you want to try their espresso so it's it's just kind of one of those um kind of what what are you what are you really trying to get to yeah my general my general criteria is mostly just uh caffeine content right right and, and not awful tasting Mm-hmm. well and that's a a good point because we shared with each other a article recently that talked about my beloved portland trailblazers and how one of the key elements of their pregame ritual for a lot of the players now is a pregame cup of coffee that is fresh ground in the locker room and then brewed in a French press. And then they use either coconut-based creamers or just straight-up coconut oil because it is a clean energy jolt that doesn't have a crash during the game. Yes, that um, that is uh, uh, it's becoming more and more common, right? Like, for, especially for um, like uh, bicyclists, like uh, the bicycle culture, uh, especially the racers are are usually will plot their course around like a stop to get an espresso somewhere in the middle of their ride. Um, and um, even um, I know some some long distance runners who are doing similar type things. So Ben, you must be super athletic. That's obviously the case. Yeah. <laughs> Clearly, I can hear the <laughs> muscles in his voice right now. <laughs> I plot my entire day chasing a toddler around when I'm going to be able to get some coffee. Yep. From, from my hot water pot and the instant 
uh, <laughs> Nescafe. <laughs> Uh, head roaster is yep. that right that's okay. right okay Kyle you're the head roaster for West Rock Coffee Company how many pounds of coffee are you roasting however you count that be it a week or a month or a year sure so um, just in uh, just starting off 2019 um, we roasted uh, well over 500,000 pounds uh, just for the month of January um, and in finishing up uh, 2018, we were right about six and a half to seven million pounds for the year. So um, we, we, we'd be probably what you would classify as like a large scale roastery. Um, and we do we have our own we have our own brand, of course, um, and that that is a uh, we're in national chains across the across the states. Um, uh, mainly in Kroger and Kroger affiliates, um, and so uh, you can find us on the shelves in all the Krogers. Uh, West Rock Coffee Company. Being head roaster for an operation that large, do you have permission from the owners to pull like a Scrooge McDuck and just swim through coffee beans like he does his money, or is that frowned upon? Uh, unfortunately, when we get to a, a the we, we, now that we've gotten to the scale that we are at. Uh, there are quite a few health uh, restriction, health uh, department restrictions uh, that we are uh, only allowed um, two to three swims a day. Mm. <laughs> so just to clarify, what does it feel like when you dump, jump off the diving board? It, like, do you have to dive or is it better to go feet first or like belly flop? Is that is that cool? Well, yeah, a little of both. It's just it's just kind of a um, you know, you've seen the videos of the guys trying to do dives and just like land just flat on their face. So it's kind of a little bit of both, but you add the fact that there's like steaming hot coffee beans, and so it kind of, like the burn is actual, like it's it's a real burn, not just like the burn <laughs> of slapping on water. Yeah, no, that makes sense. It looks like from what I've seen on the West Rock site that they really do care about the well-being of everybody upstream and downstream of, of their product throughout the process. And I know there was a time where fair trade, that designation was a big deal. Like I followed that religiously for a while when I got into coffee and now there have been some critiques on how that specific designation is is run or utilized. What's the process with West Rock to ensure that your providers are being treated well and fairly and that the environment is being taken care of and all of those considerations that go into coffee production? Yeah, so we got started, West Rock got started in East Africa and in uh, Rwanda primarily. And one of the things that we were um, sure to do when we started out was make sure that um, the employees at the at the washing station where we, where we kind of got started, the employees there were uh, always compensated on time and, and every time they were supposed to get paid because we're seeing, uh, we're seeing that a lot of the people in the coffee industry were getting, if, if they did get paid, um, a lot of times it was the wrong amount, or um, they would they would get their they would get their paycheck and it would be in cash or whatever, and then they would go home and 
it, somebody ended up stealing it from them and so we also came in and said hey look let's get you guys set up with bank accounts and we can um, just direct deposit and that way you you don't have to worry about somebody stealing your money and so just making sure that people are taken care of on the ground was a, a big part of it even things like it seems small to us but making sure that there were like showers at the washing station for the workers when they got done so like those are those are small things um, in the grand scope of things but they, they were really really important for the employees and then as well like we came in and we raised the minimum wage um, for everybody that was working at the at the washing station and so what that did was it kind of created a ripple effect across the, the industry around that area and so all of the employees were you know talking to their friends who were working at other companies and saying hey we got a we got this sweet raise uh, in minimum wage and then all the other people were like hey competitor company you need to pay us more or we're gonna go over and start working for them and so it was a it was a, a really really um, well thought out plan to to get people on board and to make them feel valued and respected and so that's kind of what we're doing um, all across the board right just whether um, whether we're going out to the different um, maybe the different farms that aren't able to get their coffee to our washing station and offering them um, a fair price for their coffee and having cash in hand to pay them right there and um, so the the fair trade part is is a bit tricky as well because uh, it it has it's changed the game it's ca it's caused people to really analyze how the products that they're getting are are, are being made but at the same time there's some uh, there are some people who they're just not benefiting from it they're not they're not getting the turnaround like like we would think that they would, and um, and so um, there's been a lot of companies who have foregone that um, making sure that they were that they were buying uh, fair trade certified stuff, and just saying, look, we have we have internal checks and balances that we're going to implement to make sure that we are paying people the right price, and you you'll see that in a lot of um, in a lot of specialty coffee companies that are sourcing their own coffees like they're saying look we are going to pay at least this we're going to be transparent about everything that we're everything that we're doing and so you'll see the price that we're paying and we are promising you that we'll pay this or above for everything and so um for west rock you know that's um it, we're doing both and right so um, one of our one of our main uh, customers that we are private label roasting for, they, their main product that we are roasting for them is all fair trade certified, and so we're buying a bunch of fair trade certified coffee, which is great. But at the same time, the coffees that we are working with and the farmers that we're working with in Rwanda are all more of a not all but a lot are um, based off this internal system that we have where we are making sure that we are paying farmers a fair wage and making sure that they're taken care of
So, Kyle, you say, you know, that you're of the opinion that coffee can kind of be wielded to change entire communities if uh, if you implement the right systems. Uh, how so? Right. So what we've seen um, through Westrock and, and other um, other research that's been done is that if if farmers are able to be paid uh, a, a fair price for their coffee and they are able to then turn around and um, and invest in their farms and continue to um, upgrade the quality of their coffee that that will then generate uh, more revenue for them clearly but what that also does is then other farmers see hey my friend on the road is getting paid however much more than I am and he's been able to upgrade all of his stuff and then I want to start doing that also and then it just keeps going trickle down like that uh, and so what ends up happening is those farmers are then able to um, spend more money in their communities and um, kids are able to go to school there's not um, as much of a health crisis in the in the communities because um, now suddenly we can put money into building um, uh, healthcare facilities in our in our rural neighborhoods and rural communities because we have the money to um, to now look outside of just barely getting by. You and I, as friends, have been talking about your coffee trips for a long time, the places that you go to build relationships with farmers. What would be an example of a time where you did go to visit a community that West Rock was considering working with or was already working in and you saw some of the community-wide transitions taking place? Sure. So, um, it, though it wasn't uh, West Rock sanctioned, the, the trip that was uh, potentially most impactful for me was a trip I took to Honduras with a friend of mine from college. And um, he and I went to just kind of look and see what kind of coffee industry was going on down there, what kind of what the scene was like. And we had a few connections into the coffee growing scene there. And so uh, what we found was we would go and visit these fincas where um, these farmers are, you know, working hard, like hard, hard workers, just trying to get their crop out. But they lived in such remote places that there was no way to get their coffee down to to a market. Right? They didn't have a they didn't have a a truck, or if they did, um, it wasn't for or it wasn't uh, it wasn't big enough, or they they couldn't afford it, or maybe they just had uh, burros or or um, you know manual labor to get it down and. So what ended up happening were these middlemen um, in Honduras, they called them coyotes, would come by and say, hey, uh, we'll buy your coffee off of you. And then they, the coyotes get to name their price and they don't pay them a good wage at all. They, they could care less. They just, and the farmers stuck in this place like, well, if I don't sell it to them, how am I ever going to sell it? And so they get ripped off and 
then down the road somewhere the the farmer might need a might need some money because he didn't get paid very well for his crop and so they say say to themselves oh, who has money i could borrow oh yeah the coyote has some hey coyote could i borrow some money from you i need a loan for this or that or the other and coyote is like yeah sure totally i can i can spot you that money uh do you want that uh, do you want to pay me back in cash or do you want to pay me in your crop and if you pick cash i'm going to name the interest and if you pick your crop you are my indentured servant and so it's a it's just this really really lethal cycle and so that's one of the things that um that is so important in but it's happening in every country it's not just on in honduras in every coffee producing country there is this cycle that's happening and um westrock has been good about that um, i mentioned earlier that they they go out to the farms with cash in hand ready to pay and they're paying they're paying them a fair price you know then they're, they're trying to get there before the middleman gets there to to buy it up and so that that right there was um was a huge revelation for me I, I I didn't know that that was going on to the degree that it's going on. Your journey into coffee has been a, a love story and an investment. However, you are not officially married to coffee. You are officially married to your wife. And um, you guys have faced some just really difficult times in your own own marriage you guys have been married um for 13 years which is a long time but there came a time in your relationship um where she suffered a brainstem stroke and there was a misdiagnosis at the hospital for a week and a half and then she got transferred to another hospital where they were finally able to determine what had happened and then the outlook was fairly bleak with 80% of brainstem stroke victims dying and others left severely paralyzed and at that point you guys are parents you have a six month old a two and a half year old and a, a five year old that she had been um, spending the, the days with raising during the day while you were doing all this coffee stuff and at the point where that happens especially for those first two weeks what are some of the the stages that you were going through as you just considered the the possible and probable outlooks um, for life at that point right so when when it happened we were in a a place of just um, there was a lot of confusion, a lot of um, just kind of moment to moment trying to figure out what to do next. And you mentioned those first 10 days with a misdiagnosis. What, what, felt, what felt the worst probably was these medical professionals that we thought were supposed to be on our side and advocating for us weren't at all and I if it wasn't for me advocating for my wife like 
I don't we we sit back and we we just kind of shudder to try to think about what it would have been like and so in those first weeks it was a lot of that it was just a lot of eyes wide open not really knowing how to how to get through other than just one like one step in front of the other right like that's the only thing that we could figure out to to make work and so we that's what we were doing um and i i'm putting kids to bed every night they're asking where their mom is and i'm trying to help them understand that hey she's going to be okay we're going to get through this everything's going to be okay the whole time me kind of lobbing one up right just lobbing it up and saying hey i i think this is right i think it is going to work out and i i i yeah i don't i don't know um how how i like looking back i don't understand how i made it through because of like i was trying to i was trying to take care of kids i was trying to get back into work when my wife came home i was trying to make sure she was taken care of um her sister helped out a lot um in those early days um with kids and um and then when she had to leave it was kind of right when school was starting and so um our daughter was going into kindergarten and like her mom was having to to come into the school in a wheelchair and um it, you know you look around elementary schools and you don't see a lot of kids with parents who have disabilities or at least not visible disabilities um and so you know she's feeling some type of way about hey my mom like everything that I know about my mom just got robbed for me and then our sons were uh you know two and a half and and six months and so they're thrust into full-time child care they don't know anything about it and they're just a wreck and so <clears throat> excuse me and so yeah I'm and the whole time right like I'm I'm trying to navigate insurance stuff I'm trying to make sure I'm I'm at work so I can get a paycheck I'm trying to make sure that my wife is is doing okay and so those are I mean that's kind of it, it was a it was a blast I like a, a, not like a not like a, a, a good like yeah man this is so exciting type of blast it was just like a a, a blast of shock and um and just uh we're we're completely um helpless in in how to go forward without the help of the the people that were around us and so our church our church um came around us when when my uh when my sister-in-law was leaving they came around us and said hey like look we know that she's leaving and we know that you guys will have like these enormous gaps in in need and uh so we want to step in and if you'll let us like we're pretty good at at doing care calendars and getting people meals but we're not very good at like sharing in the suffering of others and so like we let us we let us use you as guinea pigs pretty much and you know being in the place that I was I was like I I don't I can't say no to this and so they showed up and they were doing they were providing meals and like 
doing our laundry and um, I mean even stuff like the, there was a gentleman in our in our church who has a landscaping business and he um, he was like you're not gonna have time to rake leaves or cut your grass I'm gonna come and do that for you and so he would send he would send his crew out to to take care of our yard and um, there was uh, there was a group of grandmas who were like hey you know your kids are this is the first time in childcare. They're going to come home sick. We know it, um, and you won't be able to stay home from work all the time. And because my wife wasn't in a place to like take care of our kids by herself yet, um, they they just they were like the on-call grandmas to come and hang out with a with a baby that was sick, or to sweep a baby up and take him to their house and um, take care of him all day while. Uh, they might have been running a fever or something, and so it was a yeah. It was just a beautiful picture, you know. I uh, I tell people a lot, like, you know, you have this kind of a a picture of what what it would be like to to be around Jesus, and like this is like one of the most tangible pictures I've I've had in my life was was our church in that moment. So at that point, you were a present dad. You were an engaged dad. You're probably viewing yourself in that um, sort of Western American concept where your wife is the primary caregiver, you're doing these other things. If you could go back in time and talk to younger parent Kyle about parenting before your wife had the stroke, what what's one thing that you would have encouraged yourself to do or to practice or to invest in if i if i were to go back and give some encouragement to younger kyle in terms of his his fathering i would probably say to relax and and enjoy enjoy the moments of frustration as much as you can and and to know that those moments of frustration will be able to carry you through future moments of frustration because you will have a lot of them um, and and will that like as as hard as it is to uh, to simmer in that that need to grow your patience like it's like it's vital to to parenting uh, we, we and I say that because in the midst of being the primary caregiver where I'm not I'm not able to say, Hey, go ask your mom to see if she can do it because she like when she got first got home from the hospital, right? She might have been able to sit at the dinner table like ten minutes before the, the sensory input was too much. Like the uh, the brainstem it, one of the things that it controls is is sensory input and so if if you have um, if, if it's damaged right like which hers was clearly damaged she comes back with um, with symptoms of not being able to take in multi-sensory um, environments and I don't know if you know what it's like in a house of three children but it's um, nothing short of multi-sensory. Uh, and so, you know, sitting at a, at a kitchen table with three kids, um, all having just faced uh, some of the greatest trauma of their life, 
and not knowing how to how to handle themselves you know that's ripe for some frustration what were some of the ways you saw your role change after you know after the immediate recovery time uh, after uh, one of the most grueling parts for my wife was she so she was nursing our six-month-old and uh, she, because of the the medication they had her on in the hospital, she had to just cut, like, stop completely without any, like, warning or anything. And so that was really brutal for her. And so it went from my wife being the one taking care of our baby's needs to me being the one who was taking care of his needs. Um, like, she wasn't able to hold him. Um unless she was sitting down and then even then it was um more of like a reclined sit down and so it was like super tragic to watch and um but at the same time like uh i was i was put in a position that you know a lot of a lot of dads don't get a chance to to be in you know it's just uh it's just not a common a common thing and so um I, I was um, I was grateful that I was able to to pick that up, but at the same time I was super super devastated, um, both for my wife and our son that uh, that they would be missing out on that bonding, uh-huh. and um, so we were trying to work on ways that we could um, could help her uh, be able to like pick up that bond as quickly as possible, and so. Um, that was a lot of what her early rehab was about, was, um, just working on figuring out ways to get back to be, being with her family in a, in a capacity that she was, uh, she was comfortable with. And so I was, I was doing a lot more of the, of the scheduling, excuse me, of the scheduling of, um, activities for the kids, of, um, making sure um, kids were getting taken to school and dropped off on time and, you know, all of those types of things. And mind you, we were, uh, early on, we were uh, our only family in Little Rock, right? So uh, we're, we're in Little Rock as um, just our family, and everybody else in our family was at the least five hours away Mm. and so it wasn't like we could just call grandma and say hey grandma could you come over and take a kid to school or hey could could our kids hang out with you this afternoon uh you know auntie or whatever you know so it, it was just a it was me doing a lot more coordinating than usual um trying to um look out for my my wife as well, like that she wasn't trying to, to pick up too much at one time, like, like letting her, giving her space to be able to recover well, um, was something that, um, that I find myself wrestling with a lot also, because as much as I wanted her to, um, to her recovery to go quickly and for, um, for her to gain some semblance of normality back, 
it was it was also um, me hearing the doctor in the back of my head say, "Hey, of all the medicine that we can give her, the best thing that you can give her is rest." And so, you know, for a for a 30 34 year old woman that like strokes are not super common, right? Like it's usually older folks who are dealing with strokes. And so when, when the doctor says the rest is the best thing, you know, older folks usually have some free time on their hands to rest up. And that just wasn't the case for, for her, you know, like she didn't have that space. And so, um, I was, I was working a lot to try and, and figure that out. You had that uniqueness of trying to help your family navigate through that change. Another thing that has changed over the course of the last few years is maybe not the reality, but the discourse around race in the United States. And with your adopted son, like you are parenting now in a a multi-ethnic, multi-racial family, what are some experiences or some resources or people that have helped you grow in your understanding of what it means to really live in that identity? Yeah, so it was uh, it was kind of a, a bit of a shock for my wife and I. We, we adopted our son when we were living in Austin, Texas, and um, Austin is a pretty uh, pretty diverse adopted city uh, adoptive city I should say uh, just it's just n- not an uncommon thing to see adoptive families uh, out in public and then we got to Little Rock and um, while Little Rock is quite quite a bit more diverse in terms of um, ethnically here in in Little Rock uh, than Austin uh, we still were not ready for um, just the kind of the the uh, welcome maybe um, not that it was like we weren't welcome but it just it was just a, a lot more confusion on people's faces um, and so in in that we uh, we quickly were searching for other other families um, in our in our circle of friends who were adoptive families and who would have resources in that direction and so um, we uh, we were we were you know fortunate enough to get connected with some really really good families around here who were they were adopted parents before it was kind of cool to adopt you know um, and uh, so they've been doing it for a long time, and they they were they they have been they still are just invaluable in terms of walking through the 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 mess of of um, of how this all plays out and just the 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 trauma that's involved um, in 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 the lives of these adopted kids and so uh, I would say I would say the other f- other families in our community have been a really big source for that. Um, you know, I read, um, I was reading uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates, uh, Between the World and Me. Uh, it was a brilliant, brilliant um, moment for me to, to um, understand more fully 
growing up as a as a, a young African American boy, um, and just to be able to kind of take that and and see through a new lens uh, what what it might be like. So another another resource uh, that was not necessarily um, I, I wasn't looking for it as a as an adoption type resource, but I read um, I was reading the book Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee about um, it's kind of the the trials and tribulations of the Native American community in the 1800s and just the the mess that they had to go through and are still going through and uh, just I, I think maybe that that was kind of the tipping point for me and just kind of opening uh, my eyes even further to uh, to the plight of minorities and um, and and just factoring that all in with with our son who um, who is is a, a a brown boy in a white family right like and he's the only one and he regularly questions that and um, has expressed his his um his, just like those deep questions um and it, it's as parents you know it's a it's a a tricky tricky thing to navigate and um so the the that community around us those uh those friends of ours who have adopted before us are just huge to be able to come back and and talk to about that sort of thing one of the reasons I love talking to you, Kyle, is how powerful story and narrative are in your life, how they affect you, but then also how you're able to weave those together for other people's benefit. And your family is involved with a live storytelling project called Best With Pie. How did you guys get involved with that? And what does that project look like going ahead in regard to its ability to help non-adoptive and foster families enter into that experience right so we got we got involved with best with pie uh, by our friend eric who um he runs an organization here in little rock called immerse arkansas and they are working with youth that are aging out of the foster care system and it it was a it was kind of one of his um brain brain children i guess uh he was working he he was just like man there's so many stories out here let's see if we can see if we can get a, a something pulled together and uh he was like and also like pie like who doesn't want to come and eat pie and drink coffee and hear some good stories and so um yeah he he reached out to me and we started talking and there's a couple other folks that are are kind of in the in the um in the background trying to make this all work and coaching storytellers and that sort of thing. But what it's done is it's, it's given, um, it's given space for foster and adoptive families and people who might be affected by it or might even just be interested in fostering or adopting a place where they can come and just, just hear what, what goes on. And what it does is for, for parents, um, for foster adoptive parents who are in the in the audience, like they can stop and say, "Man, I'm not alone. Like I've gone through that same thing." And so 
just that that camaraderie is huge and for the people who might just be interested in it or who are um, affected by it by in some form or fashion um, they they are able to say hey it might it's not as bad as we thought it was and this is this is not um, completely different than than raising biological children but there's some there's some differences and um, we can embrace those differences and so uh, what it's doing is I think it's raising some just some awareness that hey you're not alone and also um, there are there are people out there who are uh, who want to help you and who are interested in um, making sure that that you um, you don't feel like you're trying to trying to get this done by yourself and in terms of like going forward um, we also have aspirations of of doing some podcasting so maybe we'll ask you uh, you guys uh, some pointers with that how how to do it um, exceedingly well as you guys are doing um, and so, uh, and you know, we, we want to make it, um, not necessarily just, um, little rock centric, but, um, start to kind of move around, um, the state of Arkansas to start with, to, to get the, get the word out to other communities as well. We've covered a lot of ground here and your life has involved a lot of unique experiences over the last 15 years. Top does life have next for you that you see coming on the horizon yeah so kind of with the blessing of of west rock uh, i've been working with a, a college friend to uh, make make a, a kind of a new path um at least um in in little rock um we're we're working to source uh, specialty coffee from unique and unusual locations, uh, places of origin that you might not see very often in the United States, and work directly with farmers that we've met um, in those in those places of, of origin. And so uh, we started a company called Atypical Coffee, and we're super small at the moment, um, but we are we're committed to this this vision of making specialty coffee approachable and and making sure that we are um, are able to pay the farmers that we have built relationships with a fair price and um, get that out to as many people as we can um, and so we're we're right now we're selling at a local farmers market and online at atypicalcoffee.com and um, it's it's uh, it's been a great a great challenge and and a lot of fun to to see what we can put together also you should definitely check out westrockcoffee.com and i am on instagram at at kyle hookstra and so i'm there um all of the the you know westrock and atypical both facebook and and instagram are, are hot check them out there so what did we learn today, Dad? I learned that coffee roasters roast way more coffee than I could ever imagine. And it sounds glorious. <laughs> Man, I was reminded of how important it is to be surrounded by community. 
hearing Kyle talk about all the grandmas and other folks who just like came over and brought food and took his kids for the day or whatever it was, you know, uh, it reminded me of how hard it is to adult when things get hard and how I really need to be a better listener for opportunities where I can help other folks out, you know, be the change and all that, right? Being an independent podcast is tough and that you need a certain level of engagement to get more attention from search engines and apps. If you like what you hear, you could help us tremendously by going to iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Podcasts and giving us a rating. If you're not sold yet, give us a couple more episodes to hit our stride. If you still aren't digging us at that point, please email us a 10-page document that outlines everything you would like us to do differently. And maybe you could be our next guest. Or our producer. Imperfect Dads was created by Ben Swihart and Christian Deschiel. We also wrote, produced, and edited this episode. We did everything but the music. Big ups to the Passion Hi-Fi for all of the music on this episode. Check out thepassionhi-fi.com to hear the selection of beats and instrumentals he has available for free and for sale. And thanks for listening. Thanks to our wives for keeping the kids from crying so we could record. Catch you on the flip. What lights up a soccer stadium? Oh, gosh. Soccer lights. A soccer match.